Hello and welcome to another episode of The Pod Well Travelled. I'm Stephen Scarfield uh, in the studio and with me is travel writer Penny Thomas who's just back from Antarctica. We did an earlier podcast as Penny was preparing to go and now we're going to fully explore the experience. Mm-hmm. Are we Penny? Yes, yes, I'm back from Antarctica, so I'm happy to talk about it. What's great, actually, is that we actually haven't talked about it, and that's largely on purpose because I just want to get it all out of you now for the podcast. Yes. Let's let's start with a few fast facts. Antarctica lies at the bottom of the world, as we know, and it's the coldest, highest, and most isolated place on Earth. Very few people live in Antarctica, and if so, it'll just be for work on some of those science-related bases down there. Antarctica was discovered more recently than you might think, 1820. No single country owns Antarctica and I must say that the Antarctic Treaty is is one example of the world being able to work together. Uh, Antarctica wasn't officially named until the 1890s. It is mostly ice and each year between November and March tourists head to Antarctica, mostly on cruise ships, like the one Penny's just been on, to explore the continent and its surrounding islands. So we're talking about the Antarctic Peninsula. So perhaps just first tell us where that is. Yeah, so that's sort of, um, well, on the trip that I did, I sort of went down from Argentina across the Drake Passage and then the Antarctic sort of peninsula is that little bit that sort of juts out at the top of Um, Antarctica. So if you look at it on the map, you can see this great big peninsula that comes out and then it's got all these different sort of um, icy sort of islands as well that are sort of scattered around it um, that we got to explore whilst we were there. So we travelled the two days on the Drake Passage, then you arrive at the peninsula and then you sort of have eight full days um, to explore that sort of area. And it's probably the most popular place that most people will go to if they are travelling to Antarctica. Um, as as tourists and visitors and it's really spectacular really beautiful mm. I, look i agree with all of that and i think eight days is a really good time to have there because there are the vagaries of weather mm. and on the shorter itineraries i mean some have six days there you know if you get a couple of bad days um you know it's a it's a long way to go so yeah. i think the eight day itinerary you were with the uh, hurty rooten yes yeah that- and what was the ship um the MS Nansen was the ship and it's a Norwegian company for those that don't know um, and they actually operate two different vessels in Antarctica and they also do other cruises that are sort of similar as well up in the Arctic. Um, the vessel could hold about, I think it's just under 500 or it's around 500 um, guests. It wasn't full, there's there's usually around maybe 300 people on board um, so it was busy and there was... Um, yeah, lots of people that were just as excited, I guess, as, as I was to, to be there and be exploring. Um, the vessel was only built a few years ago, so it's quite new and it's all decked out with lots of niceties uh, on, on board mm. that I think many years ago that wouldn't have been the case when people were exploring Antarctica. Yeah, look, it's an interesting size of ship because in the smaller ships, um, and there's a whole kind of rash of X-bow or Alston bow, you know, yeah. reverse ships which are smaller about 120 up to 200 people and they really have one restaurant one dining area perhaps some breakout areas but this is is quite different so tell us about the days because how do you 
you know, the, the day's expeditions, zodiacs, and how does it all work with so many people? Yeah, it's actually really well managed, I found. Um, I have to break this into two parts. You sort of do the travelling down to Antarctica, and during that time, there are lots of different presentations and things that go on in these lecture sort of areas. So there's, there were sort of two main lecture areas that were on this boat, which were great. So you could see and meet the scientists and the researchers that are on board with you and um, learn about their sort of area of expertise. So is that like human exploration, birds? Yep. And there's even, yeah, climate change discussions, um, all sorts of things that are going on, which was just fascinating to learn about on the way down there. Um, Can I just, can I just, sorry to interrupt you, but you're listening to the lectures, but what about the Drake Passage and seasickness? Yes. Because well, we have discussed that. Yeah, I am someone that is prone to seasickness. So you can actually live stream or not even live stream them. They record all those lectures and then you can watch them in your room. So at the same time, or you can choose to watch it later or rewatch it if you liked it so much. Um, they're always available then in your room on your TV, which is great. So all of that information is never lost if you can't go there. Mm. And there were, uh, I think, about three or four different instances where I just thought, oh, you're a bit woozy or it just gets a bit bumpy. And it's it's quite exhausting, I think, if you're coming from somewhere like Australia, you do the big travel over there, then you're on the vessel and you're sort of trying to keep yourself you know, stable um, as the boat's bumping up and down that I actually found I was quite exhausted. So it was nice to have the option to just hide away in your room, but still be involved with what's going on outside. And then you sort of get to know the different expedition guides because they're also the scientists. They sort of all sort of go into these different roles. And by the end of the trip, you almost become like a little family and you know exactly who's who and what they do and why they're there, which is, which is great to, to sort of have that um, knowledge when you are traveling somewhere, Mm. especially like Antarctica. Um, so that would fill the days generally when you're on the Drake Passage. There was also some different workshops that you could do, like um, towel folding, which was a bit of fun. You can also do knitting and things like that. But it's because you're just crossing the Drake Passage and there's not much else you can do besides um, yeah, come up with fun things and, and learn about, I guess, where you're going. So once that's all done you and you arrive in Antarctica, you are given different groups that you will be put into so they might be colors on some other vessels ours were wildlife so my group was the crab eater seals so we got that and then we all knew that whenever that group was called that we would all go down to the expedition launch room and off we went on our, our little daily expeditions um, but luckily the hurdy-gruten people have an app which was really helpful and the daily program would be updated there and if anyone's interested in going to Antarctica you sort of have to understand that the itinerary is really determined by the weather and the elements. So it's really difficult for people or tour group companies to sort of give you a definitive itinerary for each day because things can change, um, you know, within the matter of hours sometimes. So they've got all these sort of contingency plans for plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, F even, I think. Um, That can happen because the conditions can change and you might not be able to go kayaking or you might not be able to go to do that particular landing that you were thinking. So the night before you were given the first plan about what we're doing tomorrow, that's updated on the app. Then you look on the app and see where your crab eater group might be. So there's usually two different outings that you're confirmed for each day. And then you might have an additional outing that you've um, maybe gone into a pool to sort of be part of. And those things usually cost a little bit extra, sort of more different activities. So they might be kayaking or doing a photo cruise or going and doing um, snowshoeing or even camping. You can camp on Antarctica. I didn't choose to do that one, but um, that was quite a popular one. 
where only 30 people can go. So, yeah. So And they, they have a pool for those things. Yeah, and you do that as you're sort of going along yeah. the Drake Passage and then people are yeah. selected and, sure. and that's how it works. And obviously there's also wait lists because some sure. people might pull out and whatnot. But, but two, that's two outings it. a day is good, isn't it? So yeah. that's, that's the sort of standard. Yeah. And what might you do? So, uh, where for might example, we, Where might we be? Yeah, uh, on the first day... It's, it all feels very new to you on the first day. And I must admit, you can almost get a bit flustered. You read the app, you're sort of like, okay, we're going at 8.30 a.m., for example. So that's quite early. So you've got to have your breakfast before then, get back into your um, cabin and then by sort of, I reckon, quarter past eight at the latest. So then you you can get changed into your heavy-duty gear, which is, as you know, all the thermals and then good waterproof pants. And then Hurdy-Gruden even gave us an outer jacket as well that you would put on, but you'd be really rugged up. But then because the cabin's quite warm, you don't want to be sitting in there for too long in this sort of, in this gear. Exactly. I would either, if I was up there too early, I'd often just go onto my balcony and just open that up because it's cold outside and then wait for the, the PA system to go and the crab eater seals come down and then you'd all go down and waddle down to the Sideways? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> no. um, and then, yeah, so we'd all get down there and then um, you're sort of in this launch room and then you get called off again and then go into the, the, the Zodiacs which are waiting there for you. And usually you're sort of travelling. There's So our group, I think there was about 16 crab eaters altogether, but you're, it, there's usually like seven or eight on a one Zodiac, um, which is quite a nice number. And then off you'd go to explore where you are for that day. So that might be looking, you know, Port Lockroy. You might um, be able to go do a landing and, and look at the Des Moines hut, those types of things um, that are sort of scattered around the Antarctic Peninsula. Mm. And sometimes you won't get off the Zodiac. It will be more of like a viewing expedition and sometimes you will. So, But you know what you know what that, that expedition will be when yep. you're going. So you're sort of prepared and, and know what you're taking with you as well, which is good. And then you'll come back. Maybe have lunch and then in the afternoon there'll be another one. So you're off you go again. Yep. And they usually go for about an hour or so depending on where you are. Um, one day we were at uh, Wilhelmina Bay and there was just heaps of whales around us, heaps of humpback whales. So that um, expedition went for a little bit longer than mm. maybe it should have. But that mm. was just because we were in paradise looking at all these whales and Fantastic. time sort of got away from us. Were you cold? Were you well prepared and did you feel the cold? I was well prepared because you helped me out and I had all the right gear. Um, on the PA system, sometimes they'll say, well, they always will tell you what the weather is outside. And one day they said it was, I think it was one degree or, or two degrees outside. And the lady on the PA system said, you didn't need to wear all of this sort of gear because that's quite warm for Antarctica in its summer. I sort of heard that and thought, okay, I won't put that other scarf on. And I think I went out with maybe one one layer less than I normally would. And I regretted that because it's still cold out there. And mm. I was sort of walking around and I really felt it, especially around my sort of neck and, mm. and um, face and things like that. So that I learned my lesson that day that I wouldn't then travel again without all the, the proper gear, just in case, because some people feel the cold more than others. But that was the only really big instance that I felt cold besides I – did decide to do the polar plunge and after that I got very cold. But mm. that is to be expected when you're going into the water there. Mm, absolutely. So. Now, and with your pictures, with your photography, tell us about that. Yeah, so I um, I still consider myself a sort of advanced beginner when it comes to photography. So I, I was a bit nervous that I wouldn't be able to get all the shots that I sort of wanted to. Um, but I did a bit of research beforehand and made sure I understood my camera and, and all of its settings before um, because Antarctica – 
is an environment in itself which can be quite tricky at times because it's so bright. Um, for those who don't know, in summer, it's the sun is shining for like 20 hours a day. There's about four hours of um, darkness, which isn't much. And when it is really bright on a clear day, um, it, it, can, it can trick your camera's auto white balance to, to think it's something else and it all sort of blends and it cre- can create a grey Mm, it does you can be look. four stops out it's yeah. just grey and yeah, depressing isn't it yeah, the so you have sometimes to, <laughs> no that's exactly right I've you, experienced that anyway and um, you have to yeah sort of figure out the settings to make sure that you you avoid those um, sort of overexposed images to come through but um, it all up, I thought it was quite good. It, it actually was quite overcast when we were there, which is also good for photography. Um, so, yeah, it was it was nice. I liked having my camera there. That's one thing I did did learn. And I had a telescope lens that I bought mm. um, just recently, and that made the mm. world of a difference. It was mm. that was on my camera for the majority of the time, even though I did have a smaller um, lens that came with my camera, which was I think an 80, 18 to fifty five millimeter. The the large one that I used all the time was about fifty five to two hundred. So that was really good because I could zoom in on a lot of stuff and, and really capture the wildlife and, and the landscapes um, in greater depth than I thought I probably could. And how did you go with your phone? Did you use that? For Absolutely. Yeah, always. I am glad I actually took my phone because one day I did knock my settings on my camera um, to an odd setting by accident and the photos ended up um, coming up quite dark and black and uh, I wasn't sure if I could use them. So luckily I had my phone on on that day and I'm always taking photos and filming things as well. So it's nice having my phone and the quality is actually really good. You can use mm. your phone and get great shots. There was a guy that was with us um, from Germany who had an iPhone 9, I think it was, and the photos he got on that were spectacular. He actually has kept that iPhone because he thought it was the best camera. Yeah. So yes, yeah, just just to say to to people listening to this, you know, audience listening to this, that your phone, you know, can be used as a serious camera. And even I think I'm almost committed to, even if I was going to Antarctica, apart from the length, apart as you mentioned, the mm. telescopic lens. Apart from length, you know, I'd probably shoot mostly on the phone now. Yeah, yeah. And even the length is getting I I, I mean I upgraded yeah. to the the latest iPhone 15 just a few weeks before I left and that does zoom in mm. really far yeah. and has yeah. excellent quality. So yeah. I mean that that is definitely um yeah, you can definitely get away with your phones and lots of people do. That's that's just the that's main way the, people shoot these days. So Yeah. Good. So now just tell us a little bit about life on board in terms of the this the room the cabin the restaurants the food you're very good on food so yeah. how, how did that go yeah i was um i was actually really surprised with how how nice everything was and i, I guess it is a relatively new newest ship but um the norwegian sort of company has made it very sort of cozy your cabin just felt like a nice little cocoon to come to to go into especially after some days when you're sort of out and about and getting quite cold um but yeah really pleasant quite spacious as well um you've got a sitting area balcony all the rooms there have balconies as well which is great um and yeah you've got your own bathroom and with heated flooring as well i might add so the rubbery boots that they give you that you go exploring with on land. I often just kept mine in um, the the bathroom at the end of the day because they were able to sort of melt away all the ice yeah. would be able to melt away Warm as well. Warm them up for the next day. Yeah, no, yeah. Nice. So that was good. Good trick. And um, 
Yeah, so the rooms were, were lovely. Couldn't fault those at all. Um, and the ship itself is just it, – it's just a – it's a massive sort of beast really and the restaurants on board, like I said, there was three different restaurants. So you've got your main restaurant which was Anu which is um, sort of had like a, a buffet style most days but then I think it was every second night maybe they did an a la carte meal. Um, but, yeah, the, the variety there was, was great. I um, – yeah, had lots of great meals there. The other restaurant, which is a little bit more fancy and it's more Norwegian, is called Lindstorm. And that will cost you an extra 25 euros if you're dining there in the evening, um, unless you have a suite. If you have a suite, then it's always included. You just have to book a spot there. And that's a really beautiful restaurant where, um, yeah, the food comes out in this sort of spectacular format and there's a lot of seafood and, and um, yeah, it's not only does it look good, but it tastes good too. So it's amazing that they can have these sort of high quality chefs on board doing these amazing things when you're so far away from civilization. Um, and I guess getting fresh ingredients. I don't know who's the person that has to organize all of that type of stuff beforehand, but it must be a massive job. It's, it's incredible. And as, yeah. of course, you're going from a Shwire, so just the logistics of getting everything there ready for every voyage yeah. is really Insane, yeah. And then they had another restaurant, um, which was sort of like a diner, a fancy diner, I would call it actually, where you could get hot dogs and burgers and steaks and and chips and things like that, which is also just a nice thing to have, especially at lunch sometimes. And they also did waffles and dumplings. They they had a a nice sort of mix on their menu. Um, And yeah, I must note that often there would be a few menus floating around at each of these venues, but a lot of it was included in the app. On, on the phone. So right. that's something to just keep in mind that they try to reduce a lot of the um, paper and, and waste like that. So you have to be aware that things are in the app and that can take maybe a day or two to just get your bearings and, and know your way around the app because there's a lot of information in there. So that's something yep. to be wary of. Um, but yeah, food was excellent. Then there's other facilities on board like um, a pool, jacuzzi. There was a massive sauna, which was just glorious with the best like view ever um one night when we were traveling through the Le Mer channel i just went out and sat in the jacuzzi and then had a sauna and it was beautiful taking all like the landscape in it was fun. I, I mean i just sort of it was one of those pinch yourself moments when you're in um something so spectacular like that and mm. being able to relax in a spa or sauna Bizarre. why not yeah so just tell us about the Le Mer channel was that as far south as you got um, I think so. Bit for, we came through the channel and then. Is it Charco Bay? I don't know. Is yeah. that that's yeah. further? I think yeah. that would be the furthest right. that okay. we were. Um, that was the sort of turn around and then come back north. Yeah. So right. we we started down there. So we went all the way down and then we made our way back, yep. if that makes sense. Um, and it is fascinating speaking with the captain as well and how they sort of navigate um, places, especially like the Lemur Channel, which can have a lot of ice. Um, that can be problematic if you know if the wind changes and it starts to come towards them and things like that so the the expertise that the captain and the crew have is just phenomenal that they, that you can even travel there with a boat like this um but the boat is built for those conditions and can handle a lot as well um and yeah you just don't want to have to hit anything he said the green ice on an iceberg is what you want to stay away from yeah very hard ancient ice yes uh, yeah the, the blue it is, the blue-green it is, the less oxygen it has in it. So this is just crushed and crushed over, you know, hundreds and hundreds and sometimes thousands of years, the multi-year ice. Yeah. But they do call skippers like that, they call them ice hounds, you know, because mm. they, they just love it and they'll get into a bay and just churn around through brash ice and uh, 
the the skipper, the captain makes makes the difference. Doesn't yeah. It? Oh, know? definitely. Yeah. And it, the, it, everything up on the bridge. I luckily got to have a tour of the bridge. It's so sophisticated up there and and organised. And yeah, it's a well old machine, which is good. Which is what you want really when you're on a a big ship and you're exploring Antarctica, where absolutely. things have gone wrong for other people in the past. Absolutely. And usually, you know, you avoid ice and when you're in ships. <laughs> yeah. I mean, history tells us that. Yeah, exactly. So going looking for it is quite an experience, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we've been talking about um, travelling from Ushuaia at the bottom end of Argentina, as Penny has said. Uh, normally, um, trips include a sort of mustering up, joining up in Buenos Aires and flying on a charter flight or a, uh, another flight to Ushuaia and then joining the ship there, sometimes with a night in Ushuaia, which I do think is a good thing, actually. Mm. Um We'll be talking about Buenos Aires next week. Penny, okay. Penny looks at me with surprise, are we? <laughs> yes, we are, because you had some time in Buenos Aires, and we haven't talked about that either, so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, that will be the next uh, episode of The Pod Well Travelled. Penny's stories from Antarctica and getting there and back uh, will be on the west.com.au forward slash travel. Have a look through there and look for Penny Thomas. Thanks for joining us. It's good to have you back. Thank you look you. very well. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what Antarctica does to you. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks oh. for joining us, and we'll be back next week.